Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. So hello and a very warm welcome for those of you in the room and for the audience uh, following us uh, online uh, for our panel discussion on rethinking our disposable society, how to build a circular economy. Um, this event forms part of the LSE Festival, which is our annual research uh, festival showcase taking place all of this week at LSE until Saturday. And the event is co-hosted by the Department of Geography and Environment. My name is Susanna Morato. I'm the Pro Director for Research here at LSE and also Professor of Environmental Economics. And so the topic of today's panel is really close to my heart. I'm delighted to welcome to LSE um, Jason Wong, uh, Justin Lario, and Lionel Gore Martel. And um, I'll give you a little bit of introduction of our three panelists. So Jason Wong is an assistant professor of economics at Occidental College in the US, and also a visiting fellow here at LSE, where he previously worked. He runs the Connectivity Impacts Lab that studies how physical and social connectivity affect economic life with a focus on infrastructure and energy. Justin Lerio is Executive Lead for Institutions, Governments and Cities at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, which is a foundation that aims to accelerate the transition to a circular economy and that hosts the world-leading circular economy network of which LSE is a part. Lara Paul Martel is a business advisor for ReLondon, an organization that helps young businesses in London to create sustainable growth through circular uh, strategies. Lara is an LSE alumna and founded the LSESU Circular Economy Society or anywhere at the LSE. So in this session, we're going to be exploring the idea of the circular economy, where waste and pollution are eliminated through better design, reuse of resources and regeneration. We will discuss how we can transition to this radical solution to climate change and biodiversity loss from our current linear economy. The format of today will be the following. I'll invite our speakers to give some opening uh, remarks um, in the first few minutes. Then uh, we will have a roundtable discussion around some of the issues that they raise in their remarks. And then, as usual, we will open to questions for both those here in the theatre and for the audience online. For those here in the theatre, please raise your hand if you want to ask a question and wait until the microphone reaches you. Those online, you can start asking questions as we go along using the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. And please do say your name and your affiliation if you can when you ask any question. Finally, for those uh, on Twitter, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Festival. And uh, the event is being recorded and will be turned into a podcast, um, and, you know, bearing any sort of technical failures that sometimes exist, but that's our plan. And I will ask you also to put your phones on silent so we're not disrupting. Okay, uh, let's start. And uh, Jason, over to you. Thanks very much. All right, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, really nice to be here. Um, I will first start with a few introductory remarks on the circular economy. Hopefully that will provoke some thinking and perhaps some of your questions as well as we go along. Um, yeah, so, um, so here we go. So, oh, a bit faster than I thought. Um, so what is a circular economy? I'm sure uh, everyone here has perhaps maybe heard of the word before. Um, yeah, as we were saying, uh, it's about eliminating waste and pollution based on these principles of perhaps redesigning or better designs, uh, having reuse or thinking about uh, 
how we can maintain things for a longer time in, in the production or product life cycle, and also thinking about regeneration and regeneration of the environment as well. So how this sort of contrasts with the linear economy is uh, sort of by and large what, how the world has worked uh, so far is that materials are taken from the world, right? Uh, manufacturers, producers take these materials, transform them in some ways, distribute them for a from a long distance, perhaps, and, and, and sort of combine them in certain ways. And then we, the consumers, take them. And at that point, at that juncture, the responsibility of the producer sort of gets abdicated and turned over to us. And then from there on, we are in charge of these materials. And by and large, what happens is we don't know what to do with them after we have used, perhaps, uh, when this product breaks down and we discard them. That's the sort of linear economy. In the circular economy, we seek to we seek to really change this idea, change this paradigm, right? To keep this in a circular way so that things and materials are maintained as much as possible for the longest possible extended use of these things uh, and not just sort of passed on and then gets eliminated and ends up in landfills and other things back into our environment, but maintained in this circular loop uh, for as long as possible. And there are a number of ways um, that uh, we have thought about uh, in the circular economy in different kinds of business models, different ideas through which we can introduce these ideas of circularity. So <clears throat> some of the first things that we could do right, perhaps is a sharing thing, right? having secondhand products. So some of us must have seen perhaps secondhand product use on Facebook marketplaces, eBay, or perhaps a secondhand clothing shops. These are ways that we can sort of keep these materials for longer time in the economy and not have it exit the economy uh, as far. So maintaining these things, prolonging it. And if these materials do get worn down or broken down, we can reuse or refurbish, repair these things to keep it longer in the economy. So the, some of these examples we are, of course, familiar with already. So uh, nowadays, there are also repair trucks, repair markets, skills and workshops that help us fix things and keep them maintaining longer. Um, uh, in, in the life of these products. And then there's another sort of uh, uh, area that we can focus on as well for getting more value in our circular economy. For example, looping, regenerating, recycling. Um, so there's some interesting examples. For example, um, there's a, um, a company called Interface Networks that works with the Zoological Society of, uh, of the UK uh, to try to collect and buy discarded fishing nets. Instead of just having them discarded in the ocean, have fishermen, fisher people uh, bring them back, right? And turn these into useful yarn that can turn into carpet tiles, for example, uh, which, which can be uh, taking these materials that were going to be discarded and turning that into new value. Uh, in the Netherlands, there's a startup uh, that does uh, that uses a coffee residue, filter coffee, all of that leftovers, and turning that into the substrates to grow uh, oyster mushrooms and other kinds of uh, uh, mushrooms that sells back to the restaurants and coffee shops and things. So these are ways that we can loop and regenerate and, and bring new value right, from what is already embedded uh, in, 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 the, in the current uh, product lives that we have seen. Um, so uh, economist and a business school uh, professor, uh, uh, Michael Porter has sort of long proposed this idea that 
waste and embedded these kinds of externalities and pollution are actually hidden value that we have sort of missed, right? Uh, and we've just relegated them to the responsibility outside as an externality. But when we transform them, and actually even with regulation, sometimes this can turn into uh, turn this industry to, to more competitive uh, uh, advantages. And this is what the circular economy really seeks uh, to do. And of course, lastly, we should be rethinking about how we design and produce product in the first place. Eliminating waste in the first stage of the design process is, of course, very important. Right? Nowadays, ubiquitous are straws that are no longer plastic, but they're pasta straws and things. We've started in, in some of these arenas on single-use plastics and disposable products. Um, companies like Lush, for example, produce these things that don't have packaging right, compared to other places. Uh, Pop-ups of a refillable um, uh, grocery stores and things are here. So here's a photo of me trying to refill a bottle of uh, uh, bleach uh, in a machine right, that requires only um, yeah, scanning a code and refilling my bottle uh, instead of buying a new uh, bottle that will become uh, waste again, like plastic waste, um, and uh, um, so on and so forth. Uh, hotels have started eliminating single-use little bottles of sort of shampoo and things. Um, and there are other ways of doing this as well, right? So in newspapers, in textbooks, right, we have virtualized a lot of these products right, that no longer uses uh, some of these uh, important raw materials. Um, and in the redesign phase, we can also think about modularizing things. Can we swap out components rather than having to replace the entirety of a product? How far have we come in these arenas? So a very quick initial analysis, just a little data here. Uh, taking the largest companies uh, on the S&P 500 index. How many of these companies currently have mentioned the word circular economy in their corporate reports or websites? It turns out that 70% have some mention of the word circularity or circular economy. Uh, and a very sort of rough and regression analysis reveals that companies that have these mentions turn out to have higher revenues than ones that don't. But the question is, is the circular economy for large companies? Is the circular economy for small and medium enterprises? Or is it for small niche uh, sort of uh, corner stores, boutique stores? Who gets to be circular? Is this something that's a luxury? Um, is it a greenwashing signal from the companies that feel it's fashionable to attach this thing on their website and make one singular product that seems circular and continue the rest of their value chain that is based on a fast um, disposable economy? Right? Is it scalable? So some of the questions, actually I'm posing the questions here for you to think about and perhaps come back and ask us, how can policy help as well? How can policy help accelerate this progress? Um, how can consumers help? What are the things that have worked or could work uh, uh, to, to help us accelerate this transition into a circular economy? Um, yeah, so I think I will stop here. Oh, uh, but slight advertising here as well uh, for uh, courses at the LSE that offer, if you're interested, if you're a student, uh, uh, hopefully to, for prospective students as well, uh, there are a few courses at the LSE that focus on sustainability. Uh, here are just some of the examples across departments as well. Um, and in the past, uh, in some of our courses, so uh, when I was here, I did teach uh, sustainable development and we did break apart some used electronics right, to help students learn what's actually in the products. Do we know what's in our hoovers or in our keyboards? Right? What materials are they made of? What happens when they break down and we don't use them anymore? Um, and just think critically about these things, I think it's already a good step forward. And we've organized at the LSE a global circular challenge, a case competition involving uh, student, 120 students from across the world 
uh, as in a case competition format to come up with sustainable solutions for certain product spaces. So uh, in 2021, we focus on sustainable fashion as a theme and uh, stay tuned for the next edition. Thank you. And thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Jason, thanks for the very good introduction. That leaves me with a couple of points that I can, I can pick up on. I guess now that we know what the circular economy is and, and what it aims to do, one question is, is why? Why we should be doing it in the first place? You know, linear economy extraction, it did pull billions of people out of poverty. It worked really well. And it's actually a pretty good system in a world where resources are cheap, plentiful, and there's a lot of space to bury the waste or dispose of it. But as uh, Jeremy Grantham uh, noted in his 2011 uh, letter to investors, and his name must resonate here because it's supposed to be, I'll get the name wrong, but it's a climate change and uh, an environment. Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment. That one, exactly. <laughs> so what he said in his letter, which resonated with a lot of people, especially the investment communities, that the, the era of cheap and abundant materials was over forever. And that was a part, he called it the great paradigm shift. So what you had is over the course of the whole of the 20th century, a steady decline in terms of price of raw materials due to new, uh, new feedstocks, new uh, sources being discovered, better technological access uh, and better processes that made them cheaper. And if you, ex if you exclude the historical accidents, which are the oil shocks, world wars, price really steadily declined, but uh, between 20, 2000 and 2010, the century price decline was erased by volatility and spikes in the market because the, the demand was so strong. Uh, of course, the China accessing the uh, WTO played a role in that. The demand was so strong that all of a sudden there was no certainty whatsoever. And the average uh, car manufacturer in Europe saw its raw material bills rise by 50% in just one year without any visibility whatsoever on when is it going to come down for how long, et cetera. So the idea is there is uncertainty. The resources are not cheap and plentiful anymore. 90% of the biodiversity loss that we see today is the direct result of extractive activities. And that's a figure by the International Resource Panel voted by the UN Environmental uh, Program. We know that 45% of GHG emissions come from the products and the food we have in circulation in the economy. So even if you fix the whole of the energy systems, that wouldn't get us to the Paris Agreement figures because if you forget the material side of the economy, then we're missing a trick. And then finally, there's uh, massive embedded structural waste. According to our research, for instance, the average European car remains parked 90% of the time. And uh, you know that's a ton and a half of metals and polymers that have, have a lot of impact when it comes to their extraction of raw materials. And they're doing absolutely nothing. Even worse, they're occupying public space. So this is why it's really important to find a better model of economic dynamism that decouples growth from the consumption of finite resources and their associated negative impacts. To the question of scale, I think it's really crucial. I mean, it's not even, if we take the assumption that circular economy is going to remain niche, let's not even bother. The idea is to make it the norm, that's that's the point. And this is why 
big businesses, multinationals are also uh, looking at this, taking it as an opportunity. The policy side of things is really important. Uh, China had a circular economy promotion law as early as 2008. The European Union has adopted its circular economy action plan for all 27 member states in March 2020, and that's already the second one. Just a few months ago at uh, the United Nations Environmental Assembly, circular economy got its own resolution, and that's a, that's a big first because everybody thought, is it niche, is it going to go away, is it first word, is it greenwashing? It's got a resolution. It's as important as SDG 12, sustainable consumption and production, has a delivery mechanism to get there. So all of these things point to the fact that, indeed, we need to look at it in terms of feedstock, what we put on the market in terms of nature, what is it? Is it toxic? Is it not? Can it cycle? Can it not? And in terms of volume as well, does it address a need or is it overproduction? We need to look at the process and the process includes design. So of course, material efficiency in the building of the assets that we're going to put on the market is really important. Do more with less for sure. But at the same time, repair, increased durability, all of that can only be done if it's designed from the outset to be taken apart. If you can't access those raw materials because they're glued together, welded together, then that's waste. It's just going, it's value going out of the window. And then in terms of business models as well, if we're going to move towards more access rather than ownership, instead of just selling the product, the companies become material banks and they become stewards of these products, then it begs a lot of question when it comes to financial rules, accounts, uh, the, way, the way the economy is structured, because currently the model is structured and hardwired for and by linearity. The incentives go to extraction. It's almost free to pollute. Uh, and there is no level playing field. Why is a recycled plastics uh, twice as expensive as, as a virgin one? You know, why are the externalities not taken into account? Why are all these things really going one way? We're probably fooling ourselves if we think that we can address uh, the fundamentals of the circular economy, of the linear economy, simply by bolting on a couple of circular business models. It really needs to go at the root of what the economy incentivizes in terms of costs and structures. But there is progress, and I'll finish on that. I've mentioned a few of the, the policy uh, initiatives. A lot of countries are working on their national circular economy laws. Uh, there is a co-creation process in many cases with multinational companies that are investing in reverse logistics, in new materials as well, in those service models. And if we look at a, uh, an example, the, the sector of the uh, electric vehicles and the batteries, because those materials are so critical, they were circular from the outset because they knew that there is no way we're going to extract all of these resources, sell them, have them disappear somewhere, re-extract, there's just not enough. So those models need to circulate from the outset. So how does that work? There's a circular economy uh, battery alliance in the EU. Some manufacturers don't sell the batteries. They, they lease them and they, and they keep the, the propriety of those materials. So we see these things emerging at scale. Is it going fast enough? The question is always no in those cases. But how can we accelerate it? That, that's where the, the focus should be. Thanks. Yeah, so I'm here today to address the question whether a transition away from the linear economy is possible um, and how it actually works for businesses. 
And I'd like to start with an optimistic statement. Um, yes, I do believe that this shift is possible for businesses. Um, firstly, because I think it would be rather depressing if I believed otherwise while working exactly towards that goal. Um, but secondly, and probably more importantly, because I'm seeing it happen every day in my role as a business, business advisor with Re London's business transformation team. Um, so we've already worked with more than 300 small and medium-sized businesses in London, and we're seeing uh, a lot of more businesses interested in implementing circular business models. And that's both startups that want to be circular from the beginning, but also linear existing businesses that want to make a change. And another reason for why I'm so optimistic about it is because um, I think the circular economy can be really attractive to businesses. And I think there are four main aspects to that. So the first one is that the business has the potential to save costs when switching to a circular business model, for example, because they use resources more efficiently. The second aspect is that they can tap into new revenue streams. I think that has been mentioned before. So for example, by um, offering a repair service in addition to just selling products. Um, a third reason is that businesses can preempt risks of supply chain issues or a change <coughs> policy landscape, for example, when it comes to plastics or packaging. And fourthly, I think uh, circular business models or circular businesses can meet customer demands better because more and more customers are looking for environmentally friendly or conscious solutions. So this was all about why I believe that this shift is possible. Um, let's now look into how it actually works for businesses. So different businesses have different motivations, needs, and challenges when it comes to moving towards a circular economy. And while these are unique for every single business, um, I think it's helpful uh, to make a distinction between startups who are circular from the beginning, uh, and linear existing businesses that want to change. Um, and so looking at motivations first, um, startups might be wanting to disrupt the status quo. They, they want to innovate and they might have environmental aspects top of their mind. While linear businesses might be more interested in operational and commercial benefits uh, or improvements that they can make through this shift. Uh, even though I think um, environmental aspects are becoming more and more important for existing businesses as well. And then also the needs that these different types of businesses have differ. So uh, circular startups might need first and foremost investment funding, whereas linear businesses might need more guidance as to where to start or what circular business model works best for them. And then lastly, also the challenges that they face vary. So as I mentioned, circular startups might need investment. However, um, some of the circular business models aren't fully proven yet. So investors might be skeptical or not, not as confident in these types of businesses and therefore less likely to fund them. Um, and then, and this has, mentioned, has been mentioned before as well, um, the infrastructure currently is way more in favor of a linear economy. So, <laughs> startups kind of need to work around that or with this context. And uh, when looking at linear businesses, the challenge might lie more in overcoming the inertia of maintaining the status quo or in a lack of expertise or um, perhaps even um, a lack of internal support to changing the business model. 
So translating all of these different motivations, needs and challenges into a, a pathway for uh, how to transition to a circular economy for businesses, um, I think uh, we need to uh, consider the, the following points. So first of all, we need to position the circular economy as a business approach that outperforms the linear economy. And we need to do that so that we can build a case both for investors, so they invest in these types of businesses, but also for governments, so they uh, adopt uh, policies that are in favor of the circular economy. And one way of doing that is by creating solutions that actually that actually meet our needs better than, than linear solutions. Um, one example for that is the new, uh, which is a uh, fashion exchange, peer-to-peer -peer fashion exchange app. So you can rent your garment rather than buy a new one, or you can even swap stuff that you already have in your wardrobe. And uh, another example is Bundly, which is a baby clothing rental subscription. So parents don't accumulate tons of baby clothes um, with the clothes that their babies outgrow within months. So. Another aspect is to really look at what works for, for every single business and, and look at what they want to achieve and then translate these objectives into appropriate circular business models. And doing that by, while looking at it from an environmental perspective, but also from a commercial and operational perspective. Um, and that's where we at Verlinden come into play, uh, because we do exactly that. We help London's small and business, uh, small and medium-sized businesses to figure that out. Um, and we also help circular businesses in London to really build a network so they can amplify, amplify their impact. So to close my remarks, I would like to say that ultimately we can only transition to a circular economy for businesses if it makes business sense. Um, and the more momentum we gain and the more businesses become circular, the easier it will get. And I think crucial to achieve this shift is uh, funding on the one hand and technical expertise and skills on the other hand, but perhaps even more importantly, uh, a collaborative approach among businesses. Thank you so much. Um, thank you very much for these um, wonderful insights. Um, I'll start with a couple of questions before opening to the audience. So, I mean, from all that you've said, the, the circular economy certainly feels like a radical agenda, especially when compared to the linear economy that, that we have today. And there's still a lot to do. But it's also fair to say that the concepts that underpin the circular economy are not new. And I was thinking, particularly, Kenneth Moulding in the 1960s that wrote about spaceship Earth. So 60 years since have elapsed since Spaceship Earth, are we running out of time to do these changes? And is there a reason why you believe that we will have this uplift now rather than 60 years ago? So, anyway. Well, it's true, it's not new. And certainly uh, the people who talk about it today haven't invented it, uh, us included, and, and that's what we do on a daily basis, but by no means we pretend that it's a, a new idea. And it feeds on, uh, Generative design in the 60s as well, industrial symbiosis, the use of byproducts as a feedstock. There are a few schools of thoughts that, that coalesce the performance economy, uh, access over ownership to form that idea. And, and maybe the reason why it comes of age now is because those resource questions are becoming more and more acute. The International Resource Panel says that uh, over the last two decades, extraction has increased dramatically. So it's, it's you know, 
it's not a, the 60s is actually quite far away. Even if you only look at 2000 to uh, 2020, sorry, that is a dramatic spike in the extraction and the exploitation of natural resources that we consume. So this is why it's actually completely uh, topical now, timely. And, and to your point about it being radical, I, I don't see anything radical in wanting to address a physical reality. That's, that's the stuff that we have to deal with. It's just a practical way of doing it. Do you want anything to that? Um, yeah, perhaps just uh, coming back to this aspect of not being anything new. I think uh, what's interesting from our work um, with small businesses in London is to see how, for example, this milkman model um, is, is something that's kind of gaining momentum again, uh, where uh, people are actually getting their, um, not necessarily milk, but perhaps beer or wine or, or groceries delivered by, by an old milk float, um, the way it used to be decades back. Um, so I think there are, there are a lot of ideas that are kind of being picked up again. Um, I think that's uh, that's really interesting. Uh, just jump in to make a, a very quick point on that one. It is also that these models may have pre-existed, but they're now modernized and digitally enabled and they become possible. So it's not a question of going back to stuff the way that it was. And it's not a regression at all. It's actually taking the technological capabilities that we have today to make those models efficient and deliver the quality of service that we expect. Okay, um, that's great. I mean, I completely agree with that. It's interesting when I look at the narratives of the circular economy, it seems to be very supply side based, business based. But you've mentioned I had a question about public policy and the role of public policy, but you've, you've answered that question. But what about the role of consumption behavior and the changes in consumption behavior? Um, you know, what is the role of that within the circular economy narrative? Is it a debate about what we consume, how much we consume, the way we consume? Does that matter or should we focus on supply side actions? Want to take it, Jason? Sure. Um, I, I think it's absolutely crucial that the consumption side works in tandem in some ways, right? Consumers demand certain things, right? and hopefully the businesses will deliver that uh, demand. So when we start rejecting, say, this product, we're not going to take it, right? that's going to be a signal that hopefully businesses will register as well. Um, I think tying back to the previous conversation as well about sort of where are we in this, in this, in this, in this process, I think we're hopefully at some stage of a paradigm shift where then consumers also have to act and decide actively. And I think it's, it's nice to see perhaps on social media or the younger generations are actively choosing more so and setting um, this example to other people. And they're also following in some trend that they're all collectively working towards that and, and sort of going away from the behaviors from that we've all known. I mean, Behavioral change, and perhaps uh, you can comment on, on this as well. I think it's, it's a difficult thing. Right? When we're used to something, it's really hard, it's sticky, right? It's very hard to unlearn something and learn a new way of doing things. In fact, most of the time when we're told to do something differently, we reject that immediately. That's sort of our gut reaction, right? So to be told, well, actually, no, I don't want this straw um, and I don't want this thing, and then doing it in a different way does take time and perhaps practice. Um, and I think it, from the consumption perspective, this is really important that we practice it consistently and try. Right? I think um, in other domains of environment, all right, we're sort of uh, diets and vegetarianism is also changing. Products are being offered right over time. Um, it does take consumption, consumer 
actively engaging with it, right? Uh, in, in Germany, for example, where it has already a long history of uh, having a heavy deposit on bottles and things, uh, and consumers are trained to bring these bottles back and get their 25 cents back in the reverse vending machines, right? Why are these not ubiquitous in the UK or in the US or elsewhere? It does take supply and demand sort of negotiating with each other, and we should have these proliferate. And consumers demand it, hopefully we'll see it. There's something to be said as well about the uh, the role of consumption and, and the attitude, which I completely agree with. But sometimes you have to ask the question, you know, a lot of the discourse has been, it's about consumer choice, educate the consumer, inform the consumer so that they make the right choice. Okay, that's really interesting. But why is the wrong choice on the market in the first place? <laughs> you know, why am I allowed to make a mistake? Why do I need to be educated? You know, sometimes, and we do work uh, a lot with a lot of companies that realize that if they don't want that solution to be taken up, they just don't produce it. And that's it. Because yes, of course, there's freedom of choice, all of that stuff. But what we've noticed is that some companies not really wanting to change will say as a reflex almost, well, I'll produce it because the consumer wants it. Mm, okay, fair enough. But that, that's a bit of a cop-out, isn't it? So eliminate the stuff that we don't want. And the straw example is very good because it's not so much, do I need to say no to the straw? Well, actually they've been banned now because they were part of the list of the 10 most polluting single-use plastics items that were found on European beaches. So maybe it started with a movement of people saying, I don't want it, fine. But I don't think that really completely turned the tide. What turned the tide is somebody saying, okay, enough, that doesn't work. It's low volume, high, it's, it's low value, high volume. It's all over the place. It ex escapes collection systems. It flows in a river, goes to the sea. We know it. what's going to happen if we put it on the market. Let's not do it in the first place. And that's a question of design that's upstream is what we choose. Um, yeah, do you want to add something? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think the, the question of, of the role of the individual is always an interesting one. Um, and I think, yeah, it really is about finding a balance. I, I do think shifting too much responsibility on the, sh on the shoulders of, of individuals isn't, isn't the right thing. And it's like, yeah, it's kind of, an easy way for, for businesses and, and corporations to find their way out. At the same time, I do think that there is a shift in mindset required, um, especially if, if we want to achieve a like really sustainable circular economy. Um, and so I think, um, yeah, that kind of affects everyone. Um, but I, yeah, I totally agree with what you said. Thank you very much. Uh, fascinating. And um, because we have a, a large audience, I think we'll move to the audience and questions from the audience. And we'll take two time, and then uh, our panel will um, choose, uh, you know, answer parts of those questions. So, who wants to come first? No, I don't either. Um, as resources become more scarce and expensive to extract, the circular economy itself is not just a public good. But it's the way that that essential to keep future economies going. Do you do you agree with that statement? Okay, let, let me take three three questions. Yeah. Uh, there was another uh, gentleman over there. Are we in danger of falling into the neoliberal trap that this is all the individual's fault and only the individual can sort it? Um, what do you think about the role of multinational uh, organizations like the UN when it comes to 
implementing circular economy around the world, let's say. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. You have to put us on the spot. <laughs> you say, this question, you take it. You won't ask. You take the new liberal one, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> I, I certainly hope not. Um, I, I think it is, I think, actually, the three of us summarized this discussion, perhaps, uh, in, in, in an interesting way. It is, it is a complex negotiation between individuals, businesses, and the policy environment, right? When we have individuals, a group of individuals start to reject this idea that we should do, we should not be doing this. But that in itself is not enough, right? And then blaming everybody else for not doing it is also not enough. So then when the policy environment comes in and say, well, actually, we're going to start discussing a ban, perhaps, and perhaps starting at the government level, we'll have large-scale procurement bans and things that start to then trickle into well, the production side. It's no longer profitable for us to produce these. Then let's not do it anymore. And then the whole sort of system of that non-circular part hopefully collapses. And we need these negotiations to continue. So hopefully this is not going to just fall on the shoulders of individuals, but a negotiation between all three. Um, I hope, hope that's, that's the way forward. Um, there was one on multinational organizations. Yeah, I'm happy to take that one. Uh, the role of the UN is interesting. It's yeah, the, the multilateral process means that you bring countries that have a vested interest in some of these models actually not reaching scale. And there was a lot of uh, resistance in the early days uh, from countries who depend on the sale of their natural resources, and you can understand why. I mean, it's the economic viability. Their GDP depends on selling their raw materials. Therefore, it's also important to see that side of things as well and to try to design a system that works for absolutely everyone. In some countries, and I won't name them, used to think that the circular economy was employed from uh, by uh, mature economies to hedge themselves from the need to ever interact with them ever again from an economic side of things. So. There's there's a bit of protectionism at play as well. You, you need to get those economies that relied solely on the extraction of finite resources to find another way out. If they don't sell the materials, maybe they can manage them because they have that materials expertise. And that question is really absolutely crucial because A, the UN doesn't implement anything. It gives direction, it gives a mandate, it agrees on some things. And B, if it feels like it's a top-down thing imposed by a certain part of the global economy on the other one, it's never going to work. It has to be a viable solution and a, and a positive way out of the situation that we have today. So, sorry if I understood your question you well. You can't answer it. Yeah. My, my answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do you want to add anything? Yeah, perhaps coming back to this, uh, to the new neoliberal uh, question, trap question. Um, I do think what's crucial is to really um, take a systems level approach um, and to not 
look at it at the like look at the individual actors and i think that's also what you said jason like we need to we need to um take the role of each of the different players into account and kind of look at what um what implications the behavior of each has and how how it kind of interacts um and find a find a better way of of, of doing things in this way thank you so emily was three questions from the online audience yeah, so we've got one from Angelina, who is a KCL student, and she's a question for all speakers. How can schools support young people to develop the skills and knowledge of the participating in the circular economy? Um, we have a question from Andrew, who's an intercultural and CE trainer, which is given the need to level the playing field. How important do you believe the pan do the panel believe regulatory change is needed to help the circular economy? And what level, whether it's city, regional, national, trade block or international, do they see the most promising pressure points? And finally, one question from John, which is, are multinationals too big to tackle this in the time frame needed in terms of manufacturing operations and business models, specifically their ability to adapt and react at the scale to meet the immediate need for the circular economy? I'd love to take that first. Um, so I think there's lots of things schools can do, um, and both from the sort of school leadership level and at the student level where you can be involved. Um, I think Laura here is an example of co-founding co the Circular Economy Society at the LSE uh, Student Union. We at LSE also have sustainable futures and amongst other sort of environmental societies. And there are lots of things they can do to learn about the circular economy. Uh, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation has excellent resources uh, online that uh, provides sort of workshops or activities. Um, the things that I've done, for example, in my classroom have been to collect waste and start breaking them down to try to understand where things come from. These are many examples, and there are many more examples uh, on, on, on the website as well, where you can really engage students in these activities to think, start really at a younger age to think about what these practices have been like and what are things, do we understand where things come from? Um, and do they all just appear on the shelf magically? And, once we get a deep understanding of that, it does maybe go back to this individual action part, but it really does change the psyche, I think, a lot more. I think um, I have a younger sister who's 15. Uh, I think she's way more sustainable than when I was 15. Uh, and I think there's a reason for that. I think there's a reason for that. And there's, it's quite important to engage uh, at that level. My sons are vegan now. I mean, the new generation has uh, comes with different ideas and uh, different actions. So, um, the regulatory change needed, uh, policy change. Um, I'm happy to talk about that for sure. Uh, it really is important, and not everything will come from policy. But as I, as I was saying earlier, some of the fundamentals of the system that we have right now do inherently favor the linear model. So we need to address those, whether it's through questions around eco design. The stuff that gets put on the market, how it's created, how it's uh, produced, with what materials. Jason, you were talking about the um, the change of ownership uh, at the point of sale and the uh, the responsibility transfer between the producer and the and the owner of the product. Well, this is also very important to see that extended producer responsibility schemes, which have been experimental. Uh, so far are becoming pervasive with the notions of circular economy because of course if you're made responsible for what you put on the market then your incentive is either to put the right thing on the market or to take it back because it has value and therefore you keep those materials and, and products 
in the system in the right place, make sure they don't leak and we don't lose that value. There are interesting examples as well of, of regulation, for instance, the, the French circular economy law that was adopted late in 2019 has an interesting component that actually everybody wants to replicate now is that it says it is now illegal to destroy unsold goods. And we're talking about clothes, computers, that kind of stuff. You know, it's, it was until now cheaper to just burn or crush or landfill products that hadn't been sold rather than to redistribute them to charity or dismantle them, take the components away. And that represented about 800 million euros a year of value in France. And they said, well, this is not going to happen anymore. And therefore, if you produce too much, too bad, you'll have to pay for that, but you can't destroy it. And that's an incentive to reduce the production as well. You know, the fashion tech sector typically produces, overproduces by about 35%. I mean, wow. how crazy is that? So in these specific cases, regulation has a massive role to play just to mm -hmm. say, okay, these are the boundaries of the system. And this is within that, that we can do <coughs> the right things, including regeneration of natural capital. But maybe you have a, a view on how municipalities uh, come into play when it comes to regulation. So it's quite active. Yeah, I think um, it's more from a London or a UK perspective, um, uh, I guess things like the plastic tax, um, so that there's a certain percentage of recycled plastic necessary now, um, or also extended producer responsibility are, are things that we're seeing and that um, are affecting businesses. Um, and I think on a on a city level of London, um, perhaps not so much from a from a regulatory perspective, but just kind of where the interests fall uh, from boroughs is that, um, especially now that it comes to kind of recovering from COVID, um, recovering the economy from COVID. Um, uh, Boroughs are looking into the circular economy and, and looking to kind of strengthen their businesses um, by incentivizing circular business models, um, which is, yeah, not, not exactly a rec regulation, but it's kind of um, moving in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. In, in terms of the multinationals being too slow and too big to uh, adopt a circular strategy, do you have any on that one? I, I guess what it says is that how long does it take for a tanker to turn around, right? But by the same token, it, it's true that they have ingrained embedded systems that are difficult sometimes, but they also have the purchasing power to actually make a difference on, on volumes really quickly. So if there is the willingness to change the operations, to change a feedstock, to change a business model, one um, multinational doing that has two effects. It, it creates almost a norm for the other ones to follow. Uh, and it means that the policymaker has the confidence that he can act on that signal and, and make it the norm as well, because policymakers don't really want to go against private sector interests. It's a long protracted battle and usually they lose. But if there is dynamism on that front and if there is appetite, I think it's important to include the, the big companies and the multinationals in the discussion because if this is what they want to see in terms of landscape and enabling conditions, then they will give confidence to the policymakers, which means that change will happen sooner. Yeah, absolutely. If I can add to that, actually, um, I like this Hanka analogy because uh, it makes me think of the example that an oil spill 
adds to the economy because the cleanup costs X billion pounds. Right? That's the GDP, which is the astonishing, astonishing thing. It's, uh, it's actually good for the economy, right? Uh, if you think about the raw calculation of, of what goes into our national accounting. Um, but I digress. Um, the the point I want to make about sort of multinationals and, and government policy is also, I think we need to be careful, and, and I think they will be, especially multinationals, will be a good gatekeeper in some ways for equitable access to the circular economy. I think the problem is that if we, let's say overnight, Sainsbury's or other places become refillable grocery markets or certain big fast fashion brands on Tottenham Court Road became overnight sort of disappeared, right? Who is this going to immediately affect most? Who is going to lose access to a lot of their daily life products and goods, right? I think this is where policy is really important and also the sort of ushering and gatekeeping of the multinationals to make sure we check that and make sure that equitable access or another word that's used sort of in this arena is just transition towards this circular economy. Um, and we can't leave half the population behind when we have suddenly decided to be circular and, and not allow everyone to get that at reasonable uh, sort of cost and access. And that's quite important as well. Um, yeah. It's also important not to be, I, I don't want this to turn into a, multinational a black and white kind of thing there's there's a lot of really good things happening at private sector level and a lot of efforts are being made in order to adapt to that new reality and it's not necessarily a question of ideology is it the right thing or not it's the economically sound thing to do and therefore they're looking at it as well there is a lot of progress going on yeah one of the things you said about the uh, not leaving people behind reminds me of a lot of interest in the circular economies in the eu OECD countries and which are the highest income countries. So what about specific implications of circular economy to the global standard? Well, we see a lot of uh, activity. So there's circular economy, uh, Latin American circular economy coalition, which includes the Caribbean as well, is, is about 12 national governments at the moment. And they are looking at uh, this through the lens of A, we are dependent more on the sale of our natural resources. And B, we have a much bigger informal sector than mature economies such as the OECD countries. So they're, they're still thinking that is the right way forward, but they adapt those questions to their specific conditions. And this is why it's super interesting. We also saw the emergence of the African Circular Economy Alliance recently. Uh, and of course, in Asia, there's, there's an awful lot of activity happening, not only when it comes to making sure that the collection and recycling facilities are in place, but also from a, a question of design to begin with and innovation. So that discussion is definitely happening. There are tensions between those different uh, levels of, of development when it comes to trading blocks. It's also why the circular economy is a big question at uh, WTO and has been since 2018 now. So all of these things do interact and start to play on, on the global scale because yes, there is an element of localism in the circular economy, having short supply chains, local resilient, but it also is very interesting from a globalized perspective because it affects all compartments of <coughs> the economic activity as we know it. Yeah, that's, that's, um, that's I didn't know about all these alliances. I think that's, that's really promising. Okay, we'll take three more questions from the audience. Uh, 
Thank you, Ashley. Following up a little bit what you just talked about with supply chains, can you talk a little bit about the perceived or impact of the pandemic um, and even the war in the Ukraine on what this means as a window of opportunity in terms of reshoring supply chains and shortening them for the circular economy? Um, I think we've heard a lot of noise about reshoring and, and integrating vertical supply chains, which would seem an opportune moment. But do you think that is really a window of opportunity or it's just a blip? Hi, um, my name is Ming. I'm from Colibox. We are actually a circular economy startup for food and beverage packaging. So one trend that we've been seeing is biodegradables, but it's a myth that we have to debunk all the time because everything is biodegradable given time from one year to a thousand years. And I'm just wondering, what do the panelists think? You know, how does the world balance investments and resources pouring into creating revolutionarily new materials versus pouring into circular economy? And would there be one day where you know those new materials that are truly biodegradable within a short period of time would disrupt uh, circular economy itself? Um, I, I, I'm fascinated by the comments about the changing financial models. Um, and I'd be really interested to hear some more about how that might happen. The reason why I ask is I, I work in the world of food supply. Uh, the food supply system at the moment is in crisis for all sorts of reasons. Um, one of the things that's right at the heart of it is global commodity markets and the way in which they play to the linear economy and not to the circular economy. So I'd just be really interested in the, the panel's thoughts on that. Yeah, I could continue to answer that. So I'm not sure if I have a like comprehensive answer to that, but I, I do think that um, there, because um, the circular economy is promising in terms of um, building on shorter supply ch chains and not being dependent on on um, uh, on. on less secure supply chains. I think there is uh, potential there for, for businesses to be more resilient uh, and to kind of um, adapt better or, or meet these challenges better. Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, can you, sorry, can you repeat your question again? So I make sure to answer it actually. So essentially because of the pandemic and interrupted supply chains, people are, there's a lot of noise about we should reshore, we should vertically integrate. But other people have said that that's actually a risk in the long term because you don't diversify your supply chain and you become very locally reliant and vulnerable to one geographic region. So there's this debate going on um, and where do you see things going in the future? Is this really a window of opportunity to adjust supply chains, for example, for the fashion industry? Um, or is it just- I'd like to see if, if the other speakers have any thoughts on that. Well, we saw during the, uh, the COVID crisis when it hit a lot of things grind to a halt and there were very, very acute issues when it came to the availability of certain <laughs> spare parts, notably in uh, medical equipment. And that really showed that if you have the resilience uh, embedded locally, it doesn't mean that you, you only have local supply chains, but if everyone, for instance, can benefit from a uh, spare parts manufacturing facility, all the objects, the assets have been designed in such a way that they can be refurbished or repaired. And we've seen a lot of ingenuity coming out of uh, 3D printing, people hacking the system and, and coming up with parts for ventilators. We've seen, the um, some industrial facilities, automotive um, 
factories being repurposed to make ventilators, for instance. And that really, I think it opened up a window of opportunity that didn't necessarily mean from now on it's all on that side, but it showed that there is a market for these solutions. And actually in the medical sphere, it was really striking to see that the projections for the growth in the market of remanufactured and remanufacturable medical equipment was projected to grow by 25% over the next 10 years. Now to, to go to food, I think that the crisis that we're seeing now, of course, has uh, overtones of uh, sovereignty and it's very conflict-based and uh, that gave, I would, I, would, I would hate to use the term an excuse, but at least a good pretext for the debate to move from, we don't have time, we, we can't really afford to green the uh, food supply chain or the agri uh, food business. And there was a piece of legislation, the, the Farm to Fork Initiative in Europe, and there was a massive pushback from the industrial lobby saying, now is not the time we need to have sovereignty and security. And there is, of course, that tension, but thinking that sovereignty and security are going to come from long supply chains that depend on a lot of petrochemical entrants that are getting scarcer and more expensive and that do degrade the land. So every year you need to put more in in order to compensate for that. There's a long term and a short term. In the short term, it potentially feels a bit less appealing because there's a sense of urgency, but the solution in the long run remains as valid and, and in pockets of activity, you see an illustration of what it could look like in the future at scale. So it's a bit ambivalent, and I'm not saying it's not a yes, no answer. There's a bit of both. Okay, and the question about financial model. <laughs> <laughs> about biodegradable materials. Um, yeah, can you, sorry, can you can repeat the, the question about the biodegradable materials? Um, so basically, after, after some re revolution already new materials have emerged that are truly biodegradable, uh, would that actually disrupt circular economy itself? And how do we balance, you know, the allocation of resources into, you know, creating those new materials versus creating things that are built to last long and, um, you know, with, with quality? So I think um, I would say that it's not an either or uh, answer, but kind of a both end strategy. Um, so I think um, there, there's, something to products that are um, built to last, um, for example, in, um, I guess, let's say um, certain, certain products, uh, certain, certain packaging, certain, certain types of packaging. Um, and there is, um, I think when it comes to food packaging, for example, um, it would be great if, if we could um, find a, a good, um, uh, biodegradable um, material uh, because um, yeah it's 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 a very difficult to deal with uh, material um, or, or or use case basically um, so I think like we have the whole economy um, and we have so many so many products so many materials uh, so many stuff so I think there's room for both great new disruptions and new materials and there's room for um, uh, materials or products that are long lasting. Absolutely. Maybe on the finance yeah. thing, because I, I don't want, 
I can't do your question justice because it, I'm not an expert in those things and it's really complicated. But I think that at the heart of it is the question of what we put the value on and what we incentivize and what we tax or, or choose not to tax. The environmental impacts, for instance, are, are way undervalued and should be much more of a, of a question in the financial accounting measures. What we subsidize, what we incentivize, and also to a certain extent, the, the questions around when it comes to durable assets, why is a stock a liability? Why, why should it be a red? You know, if we keep things in circulation and we realize that not extracting is the way forward because we can't afford to do it anymore, then keeping an asset and safeguarding it and having it on the balance sheet should be a plus and, and not a negative. Okay, thank you so much. It's all we have time for today. Thank you very much for our three speakers for the fascinating insights into the circular economy and for the great questions from the audience. Please join me in thanking our wonderful speakers. Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences.